Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're uh, coming to some exciting parts of the book of Daniel, which are no boring parts in the book of Daniel, are they? Are they? It's just exciting as we go through the book of Daniel. Today, we're going to look at chapter 5, which is the story of the handwriting on the wall. And you've heard people use the phraseology, the writing is on the wall. And when they say that, what do they mean by that? What they, they mean is that this is the, something is making it obvious that this is the beginning of the end, right? Well, where does that terminology come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 5. And, uh, and so uh, we, we come to this, this chapter, but a lot has happened between what we were going to start reading today and what we finished with last week. So there's a lot of time that happens between, uh, between chapters 4 and 5. But it's, so it's important for us to take a step back and look at the big picture for a moment. And you might remember, all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this vision uh, of, of this great statue whose head was of gold and the arms and the chest were of silver and the, the, the waist and the thighs were of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet were of iron and clay. And, and the, how this represented uh, the, the future generations, the future empires that were going to take place. And and uh, showing the sovereignty of God in all of this. And you might remember that the head was, was Babylon itself. It was uh, the, the empire of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And that from there, the chest of silver and gold, uh, or excuse me, the chest of silver would be the Medo-Persian empire, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then the, the divided empire. And how God predicted all of this ahead of time. At the end of chapter 4, we're coming also to the end of the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So in the big picture, where are we in this, this prophetic uh, picture of the future? We're right at the end of Babylon and the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. By the way, when, when all of this was stated, the Medes and the, and the Persians weren't even working together, right? And, uh, and so here we see some things take place. Now, uh, this next portion I want to talk a little bit about is... Uh, will fall right in line with what we read in chapter 2. In verse 39 we read, But after you, talking about Babylon, shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, which is why it went from gold to silver, right? And so this is the transi- transition that we're going to see start to take place in chapter 5. So with all of that in mind, let's, uh, let's turn to chapter 5. And I want to share with you something that this is one of those moments where I take several hours of work to try and figure something out, and I'm going to share it in about 30 seconds. Right? It's one of those things. It just it happens that way sometimes. And, and, uh, uh, but here's what happened between chapter 4, uh, the end of chapter 4, and the beginning of chapter 5. All right? Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, passes away. And after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when, he, when he dies, his kingdom is passed to his son, who is named Abel Merodach. It looks like evil. That would actually fit better, even though that's not what the word meant, right? But uh, Abel Merodach was his, uh, was his son who took over in his place. He was known uh, for popularizing perverted sexual practices in the culture. So uh, he really brought in polygamy and, uh, and sex trafficking and so on into their, into their culture. And so that was uh, Abel Merodach. Uh, popularized that. From there, um, uh, he was assassinated by uh, uh, Nereglissar, and Nereglissar, uh, who had also married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, so he was the son-in-law to 
This is going to sound like a soap opera, right? You ready? He was a son-in-law to Nebuchadnezzar and brother-in-law um, to Abel Merodach, whom he killed. Now, he died of natural causes pretty quickly into, uh, into his, uh, his reign, and he was succeeded by his son, who was known as Labashi Marduk. Right? All this is happening in a very short period of time. He was just a child, incapable of leading, and so some family members decided to assassinate him in less than a year. And, uh, and, and so they appointed, they appointed Nabonidus to be, uh, to be the one to take his place. Nabonidus was also married to one of the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of kids, right? And, uh, and so Nabonidus um, had conspired to kill Labashi Marduk, killed him, took the throne. He actually reigned the longest. He reigned for 17 years. And uh, then, interestingly enough, he picks a fight with, uh, with Cyrus the Persian. By the way, that should, the word Persian should s- strike a chord in our minds. He's picking a fight with the potential next empire. And uh, he, he picks a fight with him. And to make a long story short, he ends up losing in battle to him. They let him live, but they do not let him return to Babylon. So someone else has to take charge. It actually ended up being two kings uh, that took charge. One of them was his son named Belshazzar. Now that name might, found, might sound a little more familiar if you've read the book of Daniel. He was also married to one of the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar. So if you can imagine, uh, imagine that. So, um, so, his, his, so his, some of his sister-in-laws and his aunts were the same people. If that makes sense. So this, uh, does that sound like a soap opera to you? Boy, that's, I mean, this, so this is what's going on. In these short 23 years, a lot of things have gone on. And, uh, and so what's happening as we enter into, into chapter 5, verse 1, what's going on is now Belshazzar is the new king, right? He's the new king in place of his dad, who is alive, but is no longer allowed to return because he lost in a battle to the Persians. That's what's going on. So with all of that in mind, let's, let's read in chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king of his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, uh, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So here's having this, this big feast. You get the, the imagery that this is a, this is a, a party, Right? Now, let me ask you this. If you had just been, not really elected king, but if you had just been granted the kingdom because the previous king lost a battle and is no longer gone, you might be a little worried about that, right? Anyone else be in that boat? But instead, what do we find Belshazzar doing? It's party time. Let's have a party. We're going to have this big party. And and boy, was it a party. And and here he's celebrating his new position as king. With this party, but there's a spiritual climate that is evidenced in these four verses, isn't there? And we look at this this spiritual climate that, that's going on, and it's very different than what Nebuchadnezzar would have promoted at the end of his life. 
course, let's give him some credit. He was only a believer for a couple years, about two years, from the time that he understood who God was to the time that he died. But we look at the spiritual climate at, and at, this, at this time, and there are four things that strike me in these four verses, four things that really show what it was like. Because if we want to see what a culture looks like right before God says enough, here it is. And as we, want, we look at how, how God sets up kingdoms, he tears down kingdoms. That's what we've been understanding. And here we come to a point where we're, we're seeing the writing on the wall, literally in this case. And we, we see this. And what does the culture look like that God says, I've had enough. It's time to move on. And there are four things that I see in these verses that really strike me. And that, Number one, we, we see substance abuse in the form of drunkenness. Do you know here it mentions the drinking in verse 1, it mentions the drinking in verse 2, it mentions the drinking in verse 3, and again in verse 4. Knowing that in Hebrew literature, when things get repeated, that's a point of emphasis, what do you think that is saying about Belshazzar and his feast? They were drinking. They were taking a substance, and they were using it to abuse their bodies for the moment so that they could have temporary pleasure. By the way, I think that's one thing we see in all of the sins. That are, that are going on is there's a, there's a forgetfulness of tomorrow because you're enjoying right now. That isn't that what, what Paul describes all worldly philosophies in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says it's eat and drink and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow you die. So don't think about tomorrow. Just be happy right now. That's the world's philosophy, isn't it? In a nutshell, that's what the world's philosophy is. And, um, and yet... You know, when you look at what Paul said about Christians, it was a very different slogan. That uh, for, for for Christians, it's it, it's oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Why? Because he was looking to the eternal future. Very different substance abuse, and we see this going on where they're drinking and drinking and drinking until it's harmful to their bodies, harmful to their ability to think. A second. Second clue to the spiritual climate that I see here is, is the sexual perversion. Sexual perversion. First of all, we, we read here that he had multiple wives. It's not singular wife, it's wives, plural. By the way, that's a bad idea. Right? One wife is a beautiful thing. Two wives or more, not a great idea, biblically. Amen? It's, it goes against the design. And really, even if you didn't have the scriptures, just looking at the design of how he designed us, you see that, that man was designed for a woman and woman was designed for a man. Not for multiple women. It's not the way it is. I, I remember talking to a Japanese uh, missionary who once told me, he said, Dave, it's interesting how, how the, the way the Japanese language is put together, you have, um, you have symbols that mean things. And then when you put those symbols together, they mean, they mean more things. And he says, you know what the, the Japanese symbol for war is? No idea. It says it's one roof with two women under it. <laughs> that makes sense to me, right? That, because it goes against the design. In fact, you, you look at some of the, the polygamy examples, in, in, uh, and you look at Leah and Rachel, for example, and I mean, I'll tell you, that's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And that is a type of sexual perversion. It takes a beautiful gift that God has given for, for a husband and a wife to express their love for each other and, and say, well, we're going to take out that love and commitment and just treat it for, for its physical pleasure. That's a perversion, is it not? Uh, and not only that, 
uh, it doesn't just mention the, the, the wives, but it also mentions the concubines. So no commitment whatsoever. These people just existed for the purpose. They were sold for the purpose of sexual pleasure to others. That's a horrible, horrible perversion of a great gift from God. Amen? It's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, we find this mentioned in verse 2. We find it mentioned again in verse 3. He seems to be following in the ways of Abel and Merodach. The third one is sacrilege. Sacrilege. Sacrilege means that when something is sacrilegious, what, that, what we mean by that is you take something that is holy and you treat it like it's something common. There's an entire book dedicated to helping us understand the concept of sacrilege. It's called Leviticus. And it distinguishes between the things that are considered holy and the things that are considered common. And when you take something that is sacred, thus where we get the word sacrilege, and you treat it like it's something common, then, then, then that's wrong. That's wrong, is it not? And, uh, and here, what they did is they, they took the vessels that they had stolen from the temple of the Lord. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar... Before under understanding who God was, they, they sacked Jerusalem, they sacked the temple, and he took all of the, the vessels that were used in, in, in what God had designed for the people to deal with their sins. He took all of those vessels and he took it back to his, his home. And what did he do? He treated them like trophies, right? Now we come to Belshazzar and he says, hey, we're having a party, we're getting drunk, let's go get the vessels used for the Lord the trophies of my father-in-law and let's use them for our party. You see a problem with that? God sure did. God saw a problem with that. That's sacrilegious. You know, I, when you see a culture where, where things that are sacred or were sacred are no longer sacred, that's a problem. I'll be honest, I see a lot of that in our own culture, don't you? Things that are sacred are no longer sacred. You can talk about anything in any sacrilegious way you want. And it's scary when I think about that, to be honest. The, the fourth thing that I see in here, uh, I'm just going to use the word spiritism. The spiritism is when you give spiritual significance to an inanimate object. What do we find them doing here? We, we, we find them worshipping the gods of materialism. We find them worshipping the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. We find them taking things that are in the physical world and treating them like the things that are in the spiritual world and it ought not be. And what does, what does God say? We, we are to worship him without any graven images. We don't engrave anything. We don't, we don't put anything into the form of God. In fact, God has a, his image displayed to us via the human body. Sanctity of life someday. We have value as human beings simply because we reflect the image of God. But we are not to make images of God. We're not to take any carved thing. We're not to take any gold. We're not to take any silver. And every time you see it in Scripture, God condemns that as idolatry. Amen? And we see that. So here, we see a culture that, that is just steeped in all of these things. Question, though, did it make them miserable? I mean, does that the picture that you get of the people? I mean, in the first four verses, at least, were they miserable in their sin? No. In fact, they were partying, right? They, they were enjoying their sin. 
And, and they're very happy. In fact, the word countenance is the word that the Old Testament often uses to talk about their whole demeanor. Not just their facial expression, but their whole demeanor. And the countenance that you see in verses 1 through 4 is that they were happy. They were, they were enjoying themselves. And, and I think it's important to see that a culture, just because it's happy, doesn't mean that it's thriving. In fact, they can seem like they're thriving emotionally and, and, and joyfully. They seem like they're thriving but if they're not right with God, then there's a problem. And they can, they can seem happy. In fact, the Bible tells us that sin tends to be pleasurable for a while. Uh, keep, keep your finger in, in Daniel 5 here, but I'm going to just share with you something that we talked about a, uh, a year or so ago and when we were in Hebrews uh, 11. We read, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What did he just say about sin? Sin is, has pleasures that go with it. Sin does bring pleasure. But what kind of pleasures? Passing pleasures. What does that mean? They're fleeting, I think some of the translations say. I, I actually like the, 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 the Spanish translation because it's, it's the, the, the pleasure is placer, the placeres, uh, pasajeros means they're passengers. It's the same word you use for you use for a passenger on a plane. When you get on a plane, you don't live there. You're just there temporarily, right? You just get on it. In fact, how many of you like to be on a plane for a long time? No. Usually, you get on the plane and you just wish you could automatically be there, right? Why? Because you don't want to be there. Sin is pleasurable, but for a short period of time. The, the pleasure that sin brings, it's just, it's a, you're, you're just a passenger on that plane, right? And, uh, and sin is pleasurable, but for a short period of time. Here they are, right in the midst of that pleasure. They're, they're loving life. And, and we thought, just as Nebuchadnezzar had reached the height of his pride when God said, that's it, I've had enough. Now we see the whole culture under Belshazzar, where God's saying they've, they've reached the depth of their degradation, and God says, I've had enough. I've had enough. But let's continue to read verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. I find that interesting because the lampstand was used to represent the Holy Spirit. And out from this comes this hand, right? Verse 6. Then the king's countenance, there we see that word again, countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him. So that joints, the joints of his hips were loosened and, the, and his knees knocked against each other. Boy, countenance just changed. Right? His countenance changed. In fact, we see that his hips went loose and enough that what happened? His knees literally knocked together. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but the image that comes to my mind is Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Right? <laughs> Remember them? And every time there was a ghost, which... I don't know why they never realized that every ghost is actually a person dressed up, right? But they'd see a ghost, and what did they do? I mean, they would, they would get all limp, and they'd shake, and their knees would bounce together, right? I mean, but this is the image that we get in real life of Belshazzar. He just went from happy and bragging about, look, look what we've done. We can even take the, 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 the dedicated, the devoted things they call them of, of, of Yahweh, and we can use them for our parties, and we can drink, and he's got a thousand people partying with them, and all of a sudden his countenance has just totally changed, and now he's 
he's shaking, literally shaking in his boots. And by the way, this was a very public thing. You know, if, if Belshazzar had seen the hand, anyone could say, well, that's alcohol consumption, right? I mean, he's been drinking a lot of alcohol. A lot of people, when they drink alcohol, they see things. But yet, this was done very publicly with, with a thousand plus people watching, and they all have the exact same hallucination. There, there, there's no scientific connection there, right? They all had the same thing. They all saw the same hand. They all saw the same writing, and there it was, still on the wall. By the time they went and got Daniel, who was not a part of that party, by the time they went and got Daniel and brought him back, the writing's still on the wall. So this was not a hallucination. This was nothing like that. This was something miraculous, something supernatural, and he was so scared that his knees knocked. He was haunted by this. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar was haunted by his visions? Now Belshazzar is being haunted by a floating hand. Now, when there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Okay, no one said Ghostbusters this time. Good job, all right? You've learned, right? Not the Ghostbusters, but who did Nebuchadnezzar call when he was haunted? He, he called all the, the, what we call the wise men, the astrologers and the magicians and, and so on. Uh, let's, let's see what, uh, what Belshazzar did. Verse 7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke to the wise men of, of Babylon. Whoever reads this, this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he did the exact same thing that Nebuchadnezzar had done, even though Nebuchadnezzar had learned that they were useless. It did them no good to, to go to them. It would be like going to a psychic, and it's not going to help you one bit. If they knew what they were doing, they'd call you when you want answers. Right? Did, uh, Belshazzar did not learn from his father. His, he called him his father. His father-in-law's experience. He didn't learn from them. By the way, experience is the worst teacher. Should, do we really want to learn by suffering the consequences of bad choices? The best teacher is to learn from other people's experiences. Right? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how we should be. You know, you, have, you heard the old joke, you get three guys walking to a, a bar, but the fourth guy ducked. Right? I know, it's a cheesy joke. I know. Why? Because he learned from other people's experiences. If three people walk into a bar, I'm not going to walk into the bar. And, and, and here we see he did not do that. There's a little change in the story here uh, uh, as, as the queen enters the story. But what we see at, at this point is we see God basically, God basically saying to him, Belshazzar, wipe that grin off your face. Isn't that what God's saying, really? Wipe that grin off of, of your, your face. Look what we read in verse, verse 8. Now, all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. He was, his countenance had changed already once, and he was shaking in his knees. Now it's, he was, his countenance was greatly affected. His countenance was, 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 he was greatly troubled. And God's telling him, get that get that grin off of your face. And he goes from happy to troubled, just like that. Verse, verse 10. Then the queen 
because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And as much as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So his wife, one of his wives, comes to him and says, Don't forget Daniel. Remember what Daniel was able to do for, for your father-in-law? Remember, he was still alive during this time. It, this, these aren't just stories that have been passed down. This is, he, he was alive to see this stuff happen. So he says, Don't forget Daniel. And so he decides to give it a try. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought in from Judah? I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he promises them riches. By the way, is that the thing to promise to a man of God? No, I mean, that's not, not the thing to promise to him. But it, he had to admit all of the people that he had gone to, useless. Aren't you the guy that has some kind of connection to oh, the holy God? So if you can do this for me, I'll give you riches. In fact, look how Daniel responds. I love this. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. Boy, I'll tell you this. You could preach a whole sermon on that, couldn't you? On how if you're really a man or woman of God, then you are not motivated by the physical, material stuff. The very things that they were praising in their, in their courts. The, the, the worshiping the gods of gold and silver because there's intrinsic value to those things. And, but for us as believers, I hope that, uh, that we get to the point where we understand like Daniel, that stuff doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's a means to an end. Not, motivate, not motivated by that. Should not, that should never be our motivation. When I think of the, some of the, the, the preachers on TV that are after money, I don't see the spirit of Daniel. I don't think it's the same spirit that dwells in, in them that dwelt in Daniel. Are you with me? I see that. Daniel understood that. Not driven by that. He refused the money but said, I will tell you the interpretation though. In fact, he does a little more than telling them the interpretation of the dream. He uses this as a, as a chance to, to preach a little bit. And he does. Let's look at verse 18. It says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. Your father didn't just earn it. It was given him. 
by God. Verse 19. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. Saying, your, your father, the king, seemed like he had authority because, because he could do whatever he wanted. But all of that was a gift to him from God. He, it was given to him. He didn't earn that. This was a gift from God. Daniel gave all of the credit to God. And then he gives Belshazzar a taste of humility here by retelling him the story. And he reminds him of the story that we just went through in the last week. Look at verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was, uh, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So he reminds him of the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. God took away his sanity for seven years until he realized there's a God who rules, not me. So Daniel, once again, gave all the credit to God. And by the way, this isn't the interpretation yet. This was Daniel fitting in his little sermon. <laughs> this is something you need to understand here, Belshazzar. He could have been killed for saying that. Verse 22. Look at the contrast here. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Belshazzar, you knew this. I'm not telling you anything new. It was evident. It was obvious. You knew all this. And you still refuse to humble yourself. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have, brought, uh, they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Wow. Belshazzar, if you would just realize your very life is dangling in the hands. Just dangling in the hands of the very God whom you're blaspheming by claiming power over him by drinking from the, the devoted things to the temple of the Lord. Wow. I mean, when you, I mean, this is a problem. When you think of all of the things that were just mentioned uh, that we saw in verses 1 through 4, we see him uh, bringing those up, but he, he doesn't do it in the exact same order. He first brings up the sacrilege, and then he brings up the sexual perversion. He talks about their wives and the concubines and the drinking and, and, and how they worship the gods. He brings up all of these things, and, and, and what does he have to say about it? He goes right back and he says, And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. When I think of that and I look at the, the very culture we live in, I say, doesn't that describe the culture we live in? We are borrowing breath from God. Every breath we take is a gift from God. And our lives are in His hands, and yet we blaspheme Him. We use that very same breath to speak against Him. Boy, that's a, that's a tough place to be in. I remember once seeing a dog that 
uh, it belonged to a neighbor, and the dog had gotten caught in a trailer. Uh, and it, it had jumped up on it. They had a jet ski trailer, and the dog had jumped up on it, and it slipped through, fell down, and it got caught into where every time it tried to pull out, it went deeper and deeper into his leg. It was, it was a, a gory mess at the moment. And I heard the dog, so I jumped over the fence. I ran over there, and I, I went to, to pull this, this dog up and out of, of this situation. And you know what it tried to do? It tried to bite me. It tried to bite me. I'm trying to save the thing's life, right? And it tried to bite me. Um, I think that sometimes we're like that dog as a culture. God loves us. He's giving us breath. He's, doing, he's blessing us in so many ways, and he just wants us to have a relationship with him. And, and, and we try to bite him. We bite him. We, we ignore him. We, we pretend like he doesn't exist. And, that, and that's what we do as a culture. And, I, and this is a wake-up call. And he's saying, God holds, God holds your life in his hands. You don't want to blaspheme that guy. Many of you know I love to rock climb. There are many times when I'm rock climbing, when you have to put your life into the hands of the belayer. That's the person who's holding the other end of the rope, right? You put your hands, I'll tell you what, I have never once spoken out against the person who was belaying me. You just don't do it. The only time I can think of that is when a guy dropped me and the whole way down I'm yelling, Eli! <laughs> right. That was the one thing. And why? Because your life is, is in that person's hands. We're in God's hands. It's a wake-up call. Boy, was Daniel bold, wasn't he? He was a bold man. He feared God over men, for sure. And all of this was really a preface still. He didn't interpret it. Here's the interpretation, verse 24. He goes on to explain, Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, talking about God. And this writing was written, verse 25, and, the, and this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufars. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, when you look at this, we see, we see these three words, and uh, uh, they're triconsonental. That means they're, they, they're, uh, they're based on a, on, on a Hebrew root, and... And so we have mene, which means numbered. And he, and he says, your days have been numbered. You're, guess what? Your number's up. Right? Tekel. Tekel um, means weighed. You've been weighed and found lacking. You know, that's the system of justice is usually, in almost every country I've been in, uh, when you see the symbol of justice, it's some kind of a scale, right? Because the idea of, of, of scales and weight You've been weighed, and you've been found lacking. Um, Peres means divided, and that's where you get the word ufarsin. That's the you have um, um, to, to turn it into the verb. You have the u at the beginning. It's a, I won't get into all that, but it's, it comes from the same root as Perez, which means divided. And he's saying your kingdom will be divided and given to whom? The Medes and the Persians. Who knew that was going to happen from before? God did. 
knew it was going to happen, and we see it happening. And we see this right here. If Belshazzar really understood this, do you think it would have changed the way he lived his life? Yeah. But instead, he rewards Daniel and treats it like it's no big deal. He says, I'm, I'm going to do something good for you, Daniel. In fact, I'm going to give you a, a high place in this kingdom. What good is that kingdom if this is true? It's not worth anything. What good is gold? What good is a robe? What is a gold? All that, not worth anything. By the way, Daniel continues in this story. This is the end of Belshazzar. But Daniel continues in the story. Daniel's fine. He doesn't need the gold. He doesn't need the purple robe. He doesn't need the position in a kingdom that's about to die. The writing is on the wall. By the way, when we look at this, this becomes what we call microcosm of what every single one of us has to realize. Every single one of us. We have to, what we have to understand, we come to understand that number one, our days are numbered. You know that? Our days are numbered. They're numbered by a sovereign God. We can't add to them. We can't take away from them. Isn't that what Jesus said? You can't, you can't worry about it and change. You can't change the date. It's, this is, our days are numbered by a sovereign God. But yet we live like we're going to live forever. Don't we? We live like we're going to live forever. We live each day as if, as if we were not running out of days. But if we understood... It would change the way we live our lives. We, we, uh, we have to understand, too, that God is still watching. Just like Belshazzar came to this point where he was doing everything, pretending like God was no longer watching. All of those sins, you look at them, it's like, I'm just worried about today. I don't worry about tomorrow. God's not watching. God is watching. But yet we live like no one's watching. Sometimes we struggle with sins more when we think nobody's watching and we forget the fact that God is watching. We wouldn't be concerned what other people would think. We'd be concerned about what God thinks, right? Thirdly, we see that we will be judged. There is a, there is a day, there is a time when we will be judged. That's why we're to number our days. We have to live in light of our own mortality. That's what it means when we say to number our days. It means to live in light of our own mortality. Understand that we're going to die. This life on this planet has only so many days. Now, for those who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have an eternity to worry about, right? And so we should be putting our focus on that, setting our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. Uh, But we focus so much on on this earth as if we didn't live, or if we didn't have an end to this life. Remember what, uh, what we read in Psalm 90. Read this. For we have been consumed by your anger and your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your countenance. The countenance that matters. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish uh, our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow for it. It is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What, what is the psalmist saying here? Saying, when we come to understand that this life doesn't last forever, it changes the way we see everything. 
And we become wise when we recognize, I only have so much time to accomplish things that, that God's given me to accomplish. And, and I'm not going to waste my time on the things that are going to die and, and turn to dust with me, with this body. I'm going to focus on something that's going to last forever. That changes the way we live our lives. It's, our problem is that we tend to live like we're going to live forever. Like we'll never be held accountable for our actions with Belshazzar, he lived that way with a happy countenance. Substance abuse, sexual perversion, idolatry, sacrilege, you name it. He was involved in it all. As if God was not watching. Maybe he felt he was getting away with it. But look what we read in verse 30 and 31, the last two verses of the chapter. We read, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Wow. That night. And he was proud that he's given Daniel a portion of his kingdom that was going to last just a couple of hours. Blindsided him. He had no idea. But isn't that how God works sometimes? You know, he's patient and he's patient. You know, in application, I'm just going to have three, three things. Just know this. Know these three things. Some applications are due. This is a no. Know these three things. Number one, that God has every right to act in his own timing. You know, sometimes I think uh, it seems like he's not punishing sin and he's letting culture get away with horrible, horrible things. And we're like, God, where are you? Why are you letting this this happen? Why are you letting people get away with this? And I see that. I see that all the time, even in our own culture. Why do people get away with that kind of stuff? But God isn't on my timetable. He's not on your timetable. He's on his own timetable. And his is the right one. Uh, At the flip side, sometimes I think uh, when he decides to act, we find that we're not ready for that. Like, oh, Lord, I was was kind of just, I was just enjoying my sin here, Lord. And now you're bringing this up. And uh, why? Because God does. In fact, he did it with Nebuchadnezzar. Right at the height of his pride, God says, I've had enough. He did it here with Belshazzar. Right at the, the depth of his, of his degradation, God says, I've had enough. Uh, in fact, when you read about it in the future, that when God decides to come for his bride and, and start a time of tribulation for the world and punish the world, how does he say that the, that the bride is coming? How does, how, or that, how does he say, or not that the bride is coming, how does he say that he will come for his bride? As a thief in the night. In other words, you don't expect it. You don't expect it. That's how God is. Number two, know this. Everyone's days are numbered. Don't live like you have an infinite number of days on this earth. You don't. And the older you get, the more you start realizing that. Someone told me that it's kind of like your age is like your speed limit. Right? When you're one, it takes forever. Just waiting for Christmas takes forever. For us, as parents you know, going 40 miles an hour. <laughs> going from December 1st to Christmas is too fast. It's like nothing. Remember when you were a kid and you had to put your, de- your head on the desk you know, for 30 seconds? That seemed like an eternity. And then oh, you, get, you get further and further. And so by the time you get older, you realize, wow, this is a short life. It's short. Live in light of that. And what am I going to do in this life that will count for eternity? Live in light of that. Number three, God is still watching, even when it seems like he's not watching. And there, our countenance will change 
if we don't change first. Does that make sense? Our countenance will change. I, I say all this because I know that in, in, a, in a room this size, there's, there's got to be some people in here who are kind of living in the pleasure of their life, being in charge of their own life. And maybe they're not, they're not involved in idolatry in the same way that they were, but they're involved in idolatry in other ways. Maybe there's sexual perversions. Uh, maybe there's sacrilege. Uh, I don't know what, it all, what all is, but we're living in ways that are offensive to God, and you've never come to that realization that God is real, and he means business. And we've got to get right with God. Look at the... We could, we could look at what happened to, the, to, uh, uh, to Belshazzar. But we also see Daniel, right? A man who, who, the kingdom he was in is about to fall. And he was still calm, cool, collected. A man who, you don't have to give me anything. I, I'm good with God. Boy, what a peace that you can have to reject the, the, the fleeting, temporary pleasures of the world to submit to our God who knows what he's talking about. I want to give you that opportunity today. If there's anyone here today, I'll tell you, in just a moment I'm going to lead in a prayer. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, don't leave today. You might oh, but I'd like to enjoy the, the pleasures of sin for a little while longer. I'll, I'll accept him later. You don't know when later is. Even when Belshazzar was told, oh, this is going to happen. He's still thinking later. Okay, but it won't happen today. It happened that very same night. You don't know when you're going to meet your creator, so be ready now. Be ready now. And, I'm not, and I'd like to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to give you the exact words, but I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you how you can come to know for sure that you have eternal life. For those of you who know, you know for sure you're saved, act like it. Act like it. Live like Daniel. Don't live like that, the, the, the world. Don't, don't try to have one foot into the pleasures of the world and, and one foot in something. It doesn't work that way. And if there are sins in your life where you say, you know what, I have not been acting like God has numbered my days. Then confess that to the Lord. And as we pray, confess that to the Lord and walk out of here with a clear conscience between you and God. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I just want to remind you that in, in Romans we're told that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If there's anyone here today that would have to say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I know now my life is dangling in God's hands, but I don't know that if I were to die today that I would spend eternity in heaven, then I want you to do those very two things that we just read in, in Romans 10, 9, and 10. To confess with your, your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. And so if that's you, I'm going to ask you to pray right now. Something along the lines and say, Dear Lord, I know that I am a sinner. And I know that I have offended you. I also know you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for my sins. And I accept him to be my Lord and Savior today. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. And for those of you who know for sure you're, you're saved, right now I just ask you, Ask the Lord, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and show you where you've taken things that are holy and treated them common. Where you've taken gifts that God has given to you and misused them for temporary pleasure.
and confess those to God and say, Lord, from now on, this point on, I'm going to live in light of my own mortality. Pray that to God right now. I'd like to close by praying for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this this group of people. We may never again be reassembled with the exact same people that are in this room right now, but I thank you for every person that's here right now, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you, they would not walk out of here today without knowing that. Lord, I pray that if there's any that have made that decision right now, that we could rejoice with them in their relationship with you. And Father, for those of us who know that we're saved, we know where our eternal destiny is, Lord, we repent. Lord, I believe if every single one of us were honest, we have something to repent about because we do not give you the glory that you deserve. And I pray this in Christ's name.